What Are You Made Of? It's Mike C-Rock. Welcome to What Are You Made Of? Every episode of this podcast is centered around building ourselves and the people in our lives to reach our full potential. I hope that the experiences and stories of success from these conversations can give you rocket fuel to reach new heights and help you answer the question, What Are You Made Of? What Are You Made Of? Welcome back to the What Are You Made Of podcast with your boy, Mike Searock. So glad to be here. Guys, thank you so much for your viewership, your support of the What Are You Made Of movement. Please, just a reminder to go subscribe to our YouTube channel at Mike Searock Scirocco. Also, any podcast platform that is your favorite, go there and look up the What Are You Made Of podcast and subscribe. Help us out. Continue to spread the message. So, today's guest is Rob Moore. I want to introduce Rob very briefly, and then I'll let Rob get into detail to let us know what he's made of. But Rob is known for being disruptive. He has held three world records for public speaking and has authored nine books, including global bestseller, Life Leverage. Rob founded and co-owns the UK's largest and most disruptive property education business and own and manages over 750 properties, maybe more now by the time this came out, who knows, with his partner. So Rob, welcome to the What Do You Made Of show. Mike, thanks for having me. So listen, we start the show off every time, Rob, by asking the question, what are you made of? Yeah, atoms. <laughs> what am I made of? I think I'm someone who's still trying to prove to his dad that he's a, he can be a successful person. My dad had a nervous breakdown in December 2005, a really horrific one in his pub in front of all of his customers. He was beaten up and sectioned by the police. And that was nearly 15 years ago. And he's been in and out of hospital and we've had him, had him in and out of episodes. He's about three years in. When, when I say episode, Mike, we call an episode in my family a regression back into manic behaviors. You know, whether that's really high because that can be as destructive as the really low. And my dad raised me to be an entrepreneur when I was six. He got me working in his pub. He got me emptying the fruit machines, the tills, the pinball machines, the pool tables, counting all the money, bagging it up. And bearing in mind, I'm only six. My dad would say to me, what was our take last night, son? How are we doing? Are we making money? And it made me really feel like an entrepreneur. And I loved it. And I just loved being around him. But I got sort of stuck in the school system. Now, I'm not against the school system. If you want to be a doctor, a dentist, a lawyer, an architect, go to school, go to college, go to university. But if you want to be an entrepreneur in a disruptive business that doesn't really exist in an education, like, you know, you can't study um, what I do. You can't study running training businesses, being a podcaster, being a social media creator or influencer. This, well, back when I was at, at uni, there were no courses on that. So I got stuck in that system and I lost my way. And that was sort of re, reignited in me in 2005 when my dad had his nervous breakdown because I felt such shame and pain and guilt that I was 25 years old, living off my parents, not making any money, 50 grand, this is pounds, not dollars, in debt, like a real victim, blaming the world, thought I was unlucky, thought everyone else was lucky, I thought that you know, everything was against me. And so from that day, 2005, December the 15th, I've been motivated to make my dad proud. I became financially free at 27. I became a millionaire at 31. When my parents were retired, they had nothing. I gave them a house. I've subsidized them every, ever since with the money that I've made from property. It's now 850 properties that I own, co-own and manage. We're about a 20 million a year business in Sterling. And I'm still trying to make my dad proud, even though I know he is proud. And so I guess I'm, uh, what am I made of? I know I've got nothing left to prove, but I still feel like I am trying to prove myself in this dog-eat-dog world. Maybe that's what I'm made of, Mike. Right. Now, I love it, man, because I can resonate with the story of trying to do something because of your dad. 
uh, for those that are watching that know my story. You know, I think that it never ends. I was going to ask you, when does it end? Like, when do you stop trying to do stuff that make them proud? Right. And I, I don't know that there's ever, I don't know that I ever want mine to end because I yeah. like, I love to use it as fuel. And how, what, what is your take on that? Well, I think it depends on how you look at it. For me, it ending would actually be a bad thing. My daughter's just jumped in. I don't know if you can see oh, her. That's so, cool. I love it. I um, have two little ones too. Yeah. So people say that it ending is a bad thing. And here's my song. <laughs> um, why is it a bad thing that it never ends? Why do you want to wake up tomorrow and there's been no growth and that's it and you've got no surprises left in life? But I think some people see it as pain. Some people see that, oh, you know, you never make it. You're never able to retire. Um, so, no, it doesn't ever end. And whilst I know my dad's proud of me and I know I've got nothing left to prove and I know I've got no books left to write, I still want to do more. But if you didn't want to do more, what's left? What's left in life if you didn't want to do more? I'm 41. I'm, I've hopefully got 60 years left of writing books and doing podcasts and building companies and breaking world records. I have retired at 27, at 32, at 35. I'm going through my fourth mini retirement now. But you've got to have something to chase. You've got to have something to live for. You've got to have something to create, to offer value with. When you say you retired or mini retired or what brought you to the decision to retire, what does retirement mean to you when you did it? Well, the lockdown through massive challenges. And actually, my company really stepped up and we're probably about 250% more profitable on about two thirds, three fifths of the turnover. So we've really grown. And... You realize that actually they say turnover is vanity and profit is sanity. And the lockdown really taught us that. No, this is great, man. I, I, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people want perfect scenarios. I don't. I, lo- I love when there's some unexpected things happening. Um, my wife's boring otherwise. My wife said, why are you doing the live outside? They'll jump on. But um, I like being outside. It's nice out here. So Yeah. Where um, are you located? Uh, Peterborough, just a, about an hour outside London. Okay. All right. I'm yeah. in Maryland uh, on the East Coast on the ocean uh, in the United States. So uh, nice. the, weather, the weather's really hot here. Uh, what's it like there in the summertime? Uh, well, it's 32 degrees here and really um, humid, which is why I'm outside. And that's hot for us. Well, yeah, let me clarify. That's Celsius because 32 here, when we say 32, that's the freezing mark. <laughs> so, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah we, we're Fahrenheit, you're Celsius, but. Yeah, so what is that, about 80-something? I don't know. I don't know the conversion. Yeah, yeah. I should know, but yeah. So, um, so I, I don't know how much you guys know about um, soccer in the UK, but I'm a Liverpool fan. The soccer's huge here. Yeah. A- and my son came back from school one time, just said, said I'm going to be a Man U fan. And Man U and Liverpool are the biggest rivals ever. <laughs> anyway, um, so retirement for me means not being operational in my companies, so I've got time to be strategic, to grow my foundation. I have a, a foundation I set up when I was 36 years old to do more content, more interviews. I'm being interviewed two times a day. I'm interviewing two billionaires tomorrow for my podcast. So for me, retirement means being non-operational in my companies, which some people have said to me, well, that's not a true retirement then. But it is because I'm not going to lay on a beach. I'm not going to drink cocktails. If you said to me, Rob, what would be your ideal retirement? It would be to do a couple of interviews a day to be creative, to travel and to walk and to think and come up with really good ideas, to write, to teach, to speak. That for me would be retirement, but on my own time, like right. you know, doing that for three or four hours a day. More passion and hobby 
but, but more passion chasing and being creative. It's like, you know, I want to, Rob, one thing I found out when I got into podcasting and doing shows was this is an art form. Mm. It, it is a, it is a way to create and, uh, and make things. And I, I didn't think of it before like that. I thought of it just as trying to get in, get out and get known and start, put my view out on things, but it's, it is an yeah. art form. hundred percent agree with you. Cause I used to be an artist for a few years before I got into property. So from 2002 to 2005, and people say to me all the time, have you painted since, you know, how do you get your creative juices and needs met? And I said, well, that is business coming up with a great book title, getting a great guest who, you know, doesn't do that many interviews, but you managed to get them. You know, Mike, you were really um, gracious and sitting there patiently while my kids are jumping all over me. You probably won't edit that out. All of these things, that's being creative. You know, you probably interviewed a lot of um, really interesting guests, asking them unique questions, not the same questions that they do on all other podcasts. I'm into billionaires tomorrow and I, I go on their Wikipedia and I look at, and I intentionally try not to ask anything that's related to Wikipedia because that's what everyone else is going to do. Um, where I wear Alexander McQueen clothes instead of suits and ties. You can be so creative in business. In fact, if you're not creative in business, I'd argue your competitors are going to outcreate you. Right. And that goes back to the disrupt, right? The word disrupt, right? Talk about the word disrupt because I, it has a different meaning to, to a lot of people, but I get what you're saying because I just had a meeting today with my team and we're in the home loan business and it's crazy right now. Interest rates are low and we're just going crazy. We have mm. good problems, right? People are complaining yeah. sometimes, but we have good problems. And every company is like this. And my team tells me that. But, but listen, we don't want to be like every other company. I'm going to spend more money than any other company, and we're going to be faster than anybody, even though we're busier. I don't want to hear that. So it's mm. disrupting the whole industry with what we're doing. So speak to that word disrupt. Yeah, well, some people think that disruption creates growth. There's an argument that growth creates disruption. So generally, empires, businesses, really anything, if you look over history in the world, goes through a cycle of order through chaos through back to order. So really what disruption is, is creating chaos in your industry, breaking things, doing things differently, doing things first, doing things fast, doing things better. It's sourcing out your new customers, not your current customers, and being bold enough, brave enough, maybe with no yet proven path to go and do something that maybe other companies or providers haven't done yet. Now, what I don't see disruptive as, because a lot of people think disruptive is making a nuisance of yourself or being breaking things for the sake of it, or you know, going and attacking other companies. You know, some challenger companies love to attack the big companies, don't they? You see adverts on TV with a, one company attacking another. For me, that's not what dis being disruptive is all about. That's that's being annoying. <laughs> so it's about fast growth and managing that growth and changing the path of your business and the way your customers do business with you and predicting their future behaviors, not their current behaviors. Yeah. And the other thing is, is you have to be persistent and press through those asking you, why are you doing it that way? That doesn't make yeah. sense. Now, that's not yeah. how we do it here. That's not yeah. how we do it in the industry. Yeah. And, and not, we have inside voices in our head enough that we have to deal with, let alone outside. So you have to be persistent, laser focused, and every single day revisit, rechampion your goal and your vision for what you're going to do, right? Because that's something that I've dealt with. Yeah. And you know what? Whilst many people might not like those things said to them, for me, if people aren't saying, why are you doing that? That's a crazy idea. You're stupid. If people aren't saying that, I'm not being disruptive enough. 
So I am a bit of a rebellion. Uh, I have a rebellious streak. I am a bit contrarian. I didn't make a good employee. I tried three or four times over a very short period of time, got fired lots of times. So for me, that's a measure. You know, people aren't talking about you. You're not out there enough. If you're not upsetting people, then you're not pushing enough. Um, if you're not being criticized, then you, you don't have a brand. Uh, and if people aren't saying your ideas are crazy, you're not a real entrepreneur. So, and when you started, when your dad had the nervous breakdown, and when you started on your journey of where, where all the things that you've accomplished in the last, what now, how many years? 15 years, 15, yeah. right? What, so I'm just asking you to see if you went through the same thing I did. At that moment, it's a turning point in your life, right? If, if it doesn't necessarily, if it's not rock bottom, it's pretty close. You feel destroyed. You, feel, you just feel discouraged. But at that moment for me, taking back probably even just two years ago for me, right? Two years ago, I went through something and I went on a journey. I started reading more. I started observing more. I'm 43. So it was about when I was 40-ish. I started going on a thing where I thought, man, stop being stupid. You think you know everything. Stop being like that. Learn more. Open up more. Be uh, a sponge. And then I started absorbing things and realizing how much I didn't know. And what went through my mind is, wow, look at all the time I've wasted. Now, you were a multimillionaire by 30-something, right? But still, you're thinking, well, if I'd known this 10 years ago, look at the damage I could have done, good damage. Mm. Did you go through that at all during that period of time when your dad was having that nervous breakdown and thinking to yourself, like, I need to expand more? And then that's how I got into writing too, by the way. So I don't know if that's yeah. how you got into writing. So the answer is yes. One of the reasons why I'm, okay, I'm going through a, a retirement again, fourth or fifth time. But generally what happens when I retire, because when I retire, I have no real in well, I have zero plan to go back operational on anything. But often what happens is I, I fill the void I've created and I create a new company or I write a new book or, you know, figure out some new social media platform and, and build a channel around it. Like I'm doing quite a lot of my work on my podcast and my YouTube channel right now. So, but back in 2005, when dad had my, his breakdown, it made me realize how much time I'd wasted in my life at 25. And 25 is young. I'm 41 now, yeah. so we're a similar age, Mike. 25 is young, but I realized I'd wasted probably seven years of my life messing about. Now, people say, oh, Rob, well, that was your journey and you had fun and you got it out of your system and you did all the social crazy stuff. Yeah, maybe I did, but I still felt, still felt like I wasted seven years of my life. And in a way, that void has never been filled because even now at 41, I'm thinking, I can't get those seven years back. And I'm sure at 51, I'll be thinking, I can't get those seven years back. And at 61, I'll be thinking, I can't get those seven years back. So I definitely think that is motivating me. I feel like I'm making up for lost time. And, and I think that's a good thing because if there's no void and it, look, not everyone's driven by pain and some people have had a fairly good upbringing. You don't have to have a painful story, but pain is a great motivator if you can use it well, if you can harness it. It's like, you know, kryptonite has power and pain within it for, you know, for Superman. So it's about using those things in your life that maybe you'd change if you would to go back. I wouldn't say regret, but you'd change. And using that void and turning into, like you said earlier, Mike, your rocket fuel. And so I suppose that's what I tend to do. I tend not to regret things, but I tend to try and use them to come back or to motivate me. I have critics because I put myself out there a lot. And just by the law of numbers, I'm going to have critics. I've got more than a million followers on my social platforms. So I'm going to have even if I was just like really nice and everyone loved me, I'd still have 1% critics. Well, that's what's 1% of a million. That's 10,000. That's a lot of critics numerically. 
I couldn't fit them all in my house and my garden. They were right. all queuing right. up to want to right. kill me. Um, but they motivate me as well. And, you know, having critics gives me something to, some people to prove wrong and some people to show that, you know what, I'm to be taken seriously. Now, I try not to let it, that become an ego fest because if you get too aggressive with that, that's a bad space. It's a space of ego. I'm not like trying to shoot people down or prove to them I'm a more superior human being. Just trying to take that energy that's negative and turn it into something positive in my life and with my foundation and for my followers. And what is your process when you want to get into something new, whether it's a business or new show or platform, and you don't know something? Because we all have that thing where I'd like to do that. I don't know how to do it. I like to commit and then figure it out. And I just figure out, I'll figure it out. But what is your process and how do you go about figuring things out and learning things? Is it finding people, reading, combination? Yeah. Like, what do you, what, is it the same every time? Sure. So I agree with you on that concept. I wrote a book called Start Now, Get Perfect Later. So it's a similar concept. And so in everything I want to do, I, it's important to do some research, but some sort of desktop down and dirty research, because you can research for years and plan for years and never do anything. So quick bit of research, just check, have I got time? Is it a priority? Is it in line with my mission and vision? Is it monetizable? Is it scalable? You know, I've got a few basic questions I'll ask. I can do that in an hour or a day and then start now, get perfect later. And then my strategy is number one is to find all the top players in it. So their podcasts, their audio books, their social media channels, their courses, can I be mentored by them? And I want to stand on the shoulders of giants. But I also want to bring my own uniqueness. A lot of people say to me, well, Rob, yeah, okay, you've got a social media presence, but there's loads of influencers out there. And there's American people with bigger following than you. Yeah, there is. But there's only one me, just like there's only one Mike, just like there's only one of anyone watching and listening. And, you know, I've got my own unique experience as of you, and that has merit. Um, and some people want to follow an English influencer, not an American influencer, nothing against Americans, but you're usually a good few years ahead of us in pretty much everything. <laughs> except so um, so we've got to catch you up. Um, but again, that motivates me. It's not really competition. It's just about how can I turn something into energy for me? Because energy is, is movement. So yeah, I, I find all the people who've done it. I try and stand on the shoulders of giant, giants. I try and you know, follow the trail that they've already blazed, try and get a mentor, but also try and bring my own style and uniqueness. I, I, um, I probably used to, in the early days, sort of what, 10, 15 years ago, I'd find a, a mentor or two and I wouldn't mean to copy them. But I'd probably model them so much, I'd inadvertently copy them a bit. And then people would say, oh, that's the style of, and then they might say Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tony Robbins, John Demartini, whoever. And, and whilst I was really inspired by those people, I didn't want to, someone to call me to Arnold Schwarzenegger style or Tony Robbins style or John Demartini yeah. style. I wanted them to say, hey, Rob, you bring your own unique flavor. But it actually take, well, it took me anyway, I can't speak for everyone. Hopefully people can leverage my experience here. It took me a long time to really find out my own uniqueness, my own flavor, my confidence and volition to, live, to deliver my own content in my own style. And so I, I try and bring my own style to the equation to my own experience. Yeah, you know, I feel the same thing, man. I went through the same thing where I was looking at mentors and immersing myself in their content. And that's, if you do it the right way, it's all you think about. And then mm. you start acting upon the things that you're reading and saying the things that you're doing. And before you know it, you don't even know where the hell you got it from. Yeah. So you don't know that you're mimicking someone. You don't really know because you're, you're living what you've, what you studied, right? So it is something, but I think that if you just keep persisting and doing it and you start mixing it all together, it becomes your own anyway. Mm. That's what I found. So what is one time where you committed to something like that, said you'll figure it out later and 
you got the most discouraged. Oh, and you're like, shit, I thought I, I thought I had this or I thought I could do this. And then it was just didn't work out. And you sometimes have to, it's not being a quitter. It's just something you just have to stop and move on to something else or pivot. Can you think of anything? Or has everything been just totally awesome? <laughs> no, I don't want you in any, I, I, I don't bring much ego um, to my interviews because I, there's too many things about myself I don't like enough or love enough to bring ego. The reason I'm thinking is because one thing that is good and bad about me in equal measure, Mike, is I do not know when to stop something. Like within a week of going to university doing architecture, I knew architecture wasn't what I wanted to do. But I wouldn't quit it because I didn't want the other guys in class to think I was a quitter, even though I didn't even know them. I'd known them a week. Now, looking back, that was a bad decision and I should have quit after a week. So, so I've, I've now learned that quitting isn't always a bad thing. So I'm with you on where you're going with the question. But um, maybe a couple of partnerships with, and, and I couldn't really, I don't like naming people out. No, anyway, I wouldn't ask you Unless yeah. they can get the, their side across. There's a couple of partnerships which, where I backed me and I backed them and it didn't work out. And I really wanted to prove people wrong because a lot of people are saying, oh, those partnerships won't work out. You know, that they're not right. It won't fit. It's not going to last. It's got no longevity. And I really wanted to prove it wrong. And I've backed some people and myself in that relationship, which didn't work out. But I've, I've had way more partnerships that have worked out that hadn't. And would I change anything about that? Probably not. And we made a good few million in the process, so you can't complain. One thing I've learned about myself, probably only in the last year, Mike, is I'm too trusting of people. And that, again, can be a really good quality. I believe your strengths and your weaknesses are often the same thing. in, right. in except, um, And I trust people really quickly. And I trust what they say to me. And so sometimes people can take advantage of me. And I've had that happen a couple of times where partners have taken advantage of me. I've maybe been a bit naive. But then I've had that where I've built great relationships. And there's no regrets in this. I'm just trying to answer your question. Yeah, yeah no. But most things I've started, I've finished. I'm writing my 17th, 18th, and 19th book as we speak. I know you said eight or nine in the intro reel, but it's actually 17, 18, and 19. I've been busy with that. My podcast. One of them has 150 episodes. Another one has 550 episodes. My companies, which we started sort of 15 years ago, they're still going. I've never been bust. I've never had to, or I might have had to close a company down, but that's just through an um, intentional liquidation, not a bankruptcy or anything like that. So pretty much everything I've started, I've finished. Yeah. And again, because I'm being motivated by pain, and I don't want anyone to go, oh, Rob, start things and stop, start things and stop, start things and stop. I don't mind if they say, oh, Rob, started something again while he's got everything else. A good example is property. A lot of people buy a property, they'll sell it. They'll make 30 grand or something like that. But I want to walk down. I own hundreds of properties in my city. And my city is not huge. It's 185,000 people. And I want to walk down the high street, you know, the, the retail part of the, the city where my son is 18 and say, I own that. I own that. I own that. I own that. And I own that. Whereas if I sell them, I might have cashed in and made some money, but I'll be saying to him, I used to own that. I used to own that. I yep, used to. Own yep, that. Yep. And he's going to go, why don't you own it anymore? Right, and he's right, going to go, where's right. the money? And I go, right. your school fees. <laughs> so if I do something, you get the maximum leverage out of it when you do it for the longest. Like, you know, with your podcast, if you do another 500 episodes and your podcast is already great, you've got great reach and, and following. But Joe Rogan didn't get overnight success with his podcast. He's been doing it for years and years and years. He's done 1,500 episodes. Yeah, consistency. You know, exactly. Hats off to the man. And that's, that's not easy to do because it's so easy to quit and get distracted. So a couple of partnerships, maybe I would have liked them to have flourished, but you have to accept the fact that sometimes you don't win and you just try again. How about, how about insecurities? Now, look, when people look at us and they, see, they just <laughs> see the, the, uh, the social media and they see our podcast, 
but they don't see us all the time. Now I try to share my insecurity. I try to be as genuine as possible, but what are some insecurities that you have that you're willing to share? <laughs> Cause I'm I've, sure we all have some that we're not, but <laughs> yeah, I've got plenty. And, and you know what? I'll, I'll share 95% of what's going on in my life. You know, obviously we all have our private life and our secrets as such, but um, I, my need to be liked is probably strong. And if you compare me to the average person, it's probably stronger than them because I wanted to impress my dad because he was always the guy that, you know, my dad never said, I love you. Not that he didn't, but he never said it. Uh, in England, we have the North and the South and the North are the, the no BS, say it as they see it, very direct. And then the further South you go, they, they say that we get a little bit more soft. That's what they say in our country. Um, so my dad's strong Northern, you know, gave me a back of hand slaps plenty of times when I was naughty. And so I was always trying to get love from him and, also, I was a really um, overweight kid. I was the fattest kid in my year for about three years. And I, I received a lot of bullying, although a lot of it was also in my head. And so I'd never really felt, just never really felt valued, noticed, appreciated, respected, admired. And this was at the time when I was getting into girls as well. So that was a, you know, a really confusing period in my life. So I guess I found ways to fit in. I found ways to be liked. Um, I've got pretty good people skills. Um, you know, when I want to turn it on, sometimes I like being on my own, but so an insecurity of mine is, is not being liked. And I mean, look, I had to deal with that head on in business, Mike, you'll know, you know, you have negotiations, you, you know, you have competition, you have, um, creditors, you have debtors, you have staff that leave and set up in competition. You have legal cases, you have, you know, tribunals, you have all, if you've been going in business long enough, this will all happen and you cannot be a pushover. So actually, it was business that toughened me up. But if you peel back the, 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 the rhino skin that's been created, I'm pretty soft. So that, that's one insecurity. Um, I would hate to go bust. Now, in America, I'm told, I've got a lot of you know, American friends, American billionaires who are friends of mine. And in America, if you've had a couple of failed companies and you know, you've, you've gone broke, that's kind of good for your CV. But in England, we're, we're a bit more reserved and we're a bit more judgmental. What I like about the American culture is, I know there's judgment all around the world, but in, in England, there's this quiet, reserved, but scathing judgment. And they look down their nose at you. Um, and if you go bust in this country, it's not pleasant. Now, it, you know, the, com- the corporate structure was set up to protect, protect people starting companies so that we would take a risk because, you know, employees don't take the risk that, that we do. But um, I, I, would, I have like, um, I wouldn't say an irrational fear because it serves me. But I would hate the embarrassment of failing in my um, entrepreneurial ventures and my companies and going bust. So there's definitely an insecurity there. And some would say, well, that holds me back from really taking that's, big that, risks in growth. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Are you more conservative because of that in the actions? I probably, that, what is yeah, it? I probably have. I mean, look, I've got more to lose now. You know, I've got tens of millions of pounds worth of property that generates millions of pounds a year. I've got two big training companies that are the biggest in the UK. We've got plenty of critics because of just the the sheer size. So there's plenty of people out there that would enjoy my demise and I don't want to give them that pleasure. And yeah, I'm 41 and I've got two kids who are um, nine and six. So I've probably got a less bull-headed, aggressive approach to risk. I've also, I don't know, maybe this is wisdom or maybe not, but I was more outrageous, more audacious, more upside, like very positive uh, in my late 20s, early 30s, which I think is good for marketing. But in reality, life gives you a balanced equation. It gives you upsides and downsides. 
And so I, I'm probably more mature, but probably less outrageous than I was. And I think it's because I've got more to lose, if I'm honest. I've got, I didn't yeah. have as much to lose in my 20s. Yeah. So if, if people are listening and they're starting their business now in their first few years, or they're young, take some damn risks now. Because when you've got a lot to lose, I mean, look, I've, I've got enough money to live for hundreds of years, so money's not a problem. But I have got a big house. I have got Lamborghinis, Ferraris, all that kind of stuff. So I have got a lot more to lose. Um, and when you've got less to lose, just you know, take some risks. Now, when, uh, one question I have for you, as far as the podcast goes, how do you keep – so I like to watch my graphs and my stats and make sure my <laughs> graphs are always going up, right? I, I, start, I start losing my shit if uh, it starts <laughs> yeah. leveling off. And I do that with my employees too, and I make sure they understand how important that is. But with a podcast, how do you keep leveling up with a podcast? Is it the type of guests that you get or the, the type of show that you do? Why did you have two shows instead of one? What, how do you look at improving upon your podcast and making sure that that graph continues to go up, whether it's quality or overall in general? Yeah. So um, that's probably another insecurity of mine is the need for growth. So I, I'm being honest with you here, Mike. I probably refresh my analytics on my podcast. It's more than once a day. Uh, it's probably five times a day. It's embarrassing. And yeah, I like to see all my stats go up because that feels like growth. And if they go down, that feels like the opposite of growth. And probably I'm not the only entrepreneur to say this, but I think it's important to say, I think as entrepreneurs, we can attach our accolades to our self-worth. You know, yeah, I've broken three public speaking world records. You know, I do tens of millions of pounds a year sometimes in, in revenue and all the books and, and everything else. But that doesn't define who I am. And that was hard for me to learn because you take that all away. And I didn't really think there was anything of me left. So what I've tried to work on in my new mini retirement is not needing these accolades. You know, like there's so many things I've done that I haven't mentioned on this show. And I'm challenging myself not to say it, to not try and show your audience who I am with my accolades. I'm trying to show them who I am with who I am. Hopefully they like me and they like my style. But if I keep, you know, okay, I had to drop in the Lamborghinis and Ferraris. I'll put that in the show notes, but I'm good at finding out the person and digging deep. Like you said, taking that rhino skin back because that's what I want to see because the, the journey to success a lot of times is invisible. And yeah. they see the success and the accolades, like you said, and they don't see that. So I like to find out what people are made of. And yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so with your show though, besides, besides listeners and subscribers, because to me, that's so important as well. But yeah. you know, a lot of times it's the impact you can have on one person that matters. 100%. Same thing you with could, your, teaching, your coaching company or your, your 100%. training company. Mike, we've got to talk about this. Um, we, it, we all want a global reach and we all want millions of followers and happy customers and everything else. But actually, you make real change one person at a time. So something that I started doing probably three years ago properly, but the lockdown exaggerated it, is I started picking up the phone again and just calling up clients randomly and calling people one-to-one and spending 15 minutes helping them. And when you put the phone down and you've spoken to someone one-to-one and you've helped them, like I've helped quite a lot of people, so they've told me from like near suicide situations I've done hundreds, maybe even thousands of one-to-one calls of my own time. And yeah, you can do a video and it can reach a million people. You can get loads of likes and loads of comments. Yeah, love your work. But when you speak to an individual on the phone for 15 minutes and really help them, there's nothing that beats that. So you're totally right. You, you change the world one person at a time. You don't change the world a million views at a time. I really agree with that. And so that's probably helped me get a bit less obsessed with statistics because you know, look, there's always going to be someone with a bigger podcast. There's always going to be someone with more Facebook followers, always going to be someone with more YouTube views. So what do I do to try and keep my content fresh, to try and keep my stats growing in the right way, 
So the first thing is I like to test stuff on my podcast. So I can get quite ranty. I haven't yet here, but I can get quite ranty. And a few people were saying on my lives, oh, Rob, we like your rants. So we, we tested some Rob's rants episodes right. and people love those. They get more downloads than sometimes my billionaire guests. The next thing I thought, well, you know, having billionaires is great. But the thing with billionaires is either they're impossible to get, like try and get Jeff Bezos, right. you know, try and get him. Right. Or they're the billionaires that have been done the circuit, like Richard Branson. I'd love to have him, don't get me wrong, but he's been everywhere. Right. So how can you think different? What about Scottish billionaires? What about Canadian billionaires? What about unknown billionaires? So I've got a Canadian billionaire tomorrow. I'm interviewing two billionaires tomorrow. I've interviewed all the Scottish billionaires. Now, I don't know any other podcast has thought, what about Scottish billionaires? Right, right. I love it. So, so I'm just trying to think in a different way. Um, I do longer episodes, and then we, we do what's called caffeine casts, which is like, you know, people like the short eight, 10 minute episodes. I do test episodes where I'll just have a random idea and I'll just stick it out on the podcast. I do collaborations. I think that they're great. So we'll probably put this on my show, Mike. Um, I like to interview guests who um, you wouldn't necessarily think would be on a business podcast. So there's a very controversial figure in the UK called Katie Hopkins. John McAfee, you may have heard in America. Mm -hmm. He was on that um, documentary Gringo, which is quite shocking. Yep, yep. David Icke is a huge con conspiracy theorist here. And these guests, people would either go, why on, on a business podcast or no, 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 you shouldn't go anywhere near them. And that makes me interested. Well, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because people will watch, people will watch something that's disruptive. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? hundred percent. And like, I love people like Richard Branson and you're going to learn something, but you've probably seen a lot on him, right? But you've not seen David Icke talk about business on a business podcast. So yeah. if you get your ego out of the way, you're going to learn something you've not learned before. I don't want people to learn on my show the same motivational quotes they learn everywhere else. Nothing wrong with a bit of that. I want them to learn something they can't learn on another podcast. Yep. Like some hat, like the journey that someone took that you'd never heard about. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. All right. Well, listen, we have limited time. I could sit here and talk to you all day. One last question I, I want to ask you has to do with the world record. What did the world record, like how did you get the world record and what did it pertain to? With the public I, I broke the um, individual world record for the longest speech. So I did 47 and a half hours straight day and night public speech. Um, and I broke the world record by a few hours. And that was, was fun. That, wait a minute, was that off the cuff though? Like that was... Um, well, I'd, I'd sort of planned the content, but I, I would say half of it was off the cuff. Now I spoke about property and business, my two favorite subjects. So I could talk for 147 hours on those things. So people often say, how did you talk for that long on the subject? Without that repeating yourself. Well, yeah, that wasn't my problem at all. I could have probably gone another 15 hours. My problem was I lost my voice on the second night. Completely lost my voice. But do you, do you so realize, that, did, did, wait a minute. Did you wrap your head around 40-some hours? Like, you well, know no. how long that is? Like, no, that is? No, no. And this is why I did it. So, you know, we were talking about commit now and figure it out later. Or start <laughs> yeah, yeah. now and get it later. Well, I thought I wanted to break a world record. Everyone in our space was doing the same marketing, wearing the same clothes, and it was all boring and vanilla. And I wanted to do something different. Now, there's been people since that have tried, have either broken my world record or copied it. There's a couple of guys right now copied a couple of my world records. That's cool. But I like to think in my space, I innovated it. And this was probably, what, seven years ago, something like that. Um, so I was doing a lot of speaking. I was doing a lot of training. Um, and I went out and researched a load of world records. And a load of them were not relevant. And then this one came up. And I thought, 47 and a half hours. That's actually only two days. And so I taught myself into it. And if I'd have known how hard it was, there's no way I'd have done it. Like, I wouldn't do it again. It's too hard. It's <laughs> no, too hard for me. I don't it's even not, want to think about doing it. <laughs> I had hallucinations. I lost my voice. 
I mean, my voice is still not properly <laughs> fixed. I don't love the. Is it is it on somewhere YouTube or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I want to see. I want to see the back end of it. I don't even want to see the beginning. I just want to watch like the right. last. I'll get the bit out where I lose my voice, and you can just <laughs> you can see all over my face. I'm dead. I'm completely dead. But yes, you know, sometimes business people say, if I'd have known then how hard it was, I might not have gone into it. I say it all the time with my wife. Yeah. I tell her that. I t- not not my marriage. Not my marriage. Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell my wife about my business all the time. <laughs> so, but so oh, sometimes man. it's. Sometimes it's good not to know how hard it's going to be because you give it a go. I wouldn't have given it a go if I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Um, so we broke that. And then the next year I decided to do the team one. Now the team one was held. It was 140 something hours or 120 something hours, but like 300 people had done a relay. And I just thought that's too easy. So we got four of us and we did a, a quarter of it each. So I did about 35 hour slot on that one because I obviously had, had experience breaking those world records. That was a bit of fun. I'm looking for my next big challenge like that a world record or just something a bit different because that created a lot of noise in our industry. I raised um, 130,000 pounds for a charity doing that as well. And I made about 350,000 pounds in revenue for my company. So it was a good, good 48 hours. Awesome. Um, awesome. Yeah. Well, Rob, look, thank you so much for coming on the What Are You Made Of show. I appreciate it. It's nice to connect with you. And pleasure, uh, Mike. when I pop over to England for the first time ever, I'm hoping that soccer is back up and running with, with spectators and what have you. And I'd love to see a game with you or a match, I should say. <laughs> yeah, hook me up. That'd be great. And can we do one final shout out for your show to my um, people who are watching the video? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, what do you have it on, by the way? Is it Facebook or? Yeah, it's on my Facebook page. Yeah. So yeah. You've, you, want, you want me to share my show as far as my show? Yeah. Just, yeah. Tell everyone what your show's called and your name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike C. Rock Sirocco, the What Are You Made Of podcast. It is all about turning setbacks into rocket fuel for your future. And we are so thankful to have Rob Moore, his audience, our audience, participating in our uh, interview today. And also, I just, I'm always thankful, so thankful that people want to come on this show and want to listen to this show. And I just want to sh- express gratitude for that. So, Rob, again, thank you very much. And if there's anything I could ever do for you, man, just reach out, okay? Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of What Are You Made Of? Be sure to check my website out at themikecrock.com, themikecrock with no K.com, and let us know how we can help you or your business reach its full potential. Feel free to leave a review or follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Mike C. Rock Again, thank you for joining me and see you guys on the next episode.